Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Adam Rogers, class of 92, senior correspondent at Wired magazine, and author of two books, the New York Times science bestseller, Proof, The Science of Booze, and the soon-to-be-released Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. Welcome, Adam. Thank you very much. Boy, when you say class of 92, it seems so long ago now. <laughs> it's it, seems so, it seems so futuristic. <laughs> when, when it was happening, it seemed like it was the future, and now it seems like the past. Well, I always, I, I always say, you know, I, I grew up with the space program, so the year 1970 still sounds futuristic to me. <laughs> yeah, it's all, yeah, right on. It's all about perspective. <laughs> um, so how have you been adapting to this, this weird pandemic world? It's interesting that you should use the word adapting. Adaptation has been on my mind kind of a lot. I'm trying to work on a story um, about uh, about how how COVID itself um, adapts and evolves and changes, and, uh, and it's fascinating. You know, it's a it's a scientifically fascinating virus. But I think about it in terms of what, like my job in some respects hasn't changed at all. My job has always been. I'm not, I can't go see people anymore as a reporter. Or go to the place where something is happening. I'm I'm less intrepid than some of my colleagues about that and maybe more risk averse. And that's a bummer. But at the same time, a big, a big chunk of my job was always being on the phone and being on Zoom, you know, <laughs> video calls and, and reading stuff and talking to people and asking them what they think and asking them what they're doing and then writing about it, doing an analytical thing. Um, taking, I used to joke that the job was taking a large stack of papers on the left side of my computer and turning it into a small stack of paper on my, on the right side of my computer. <laughs> Um, and that really hasn't changed. The place that I do that is totally different. I used to go to an office every day, like so many people did. And, and now I'm, sh I'm sharing the home office with my partner, um, which is making her nuts. Um, just cause she's never had to do that with, she hasn't had to do that with me since we were at Pomona together. Um, really. And, uh, you know, my kids are home so that, and it feels like as a science fiction nerd, I keep thinking of it as like, as if we're on a generation starship together <laughs> and we have intermittent and not great comms with other generation starships. <laughs> so sometimes we can communicate with the other ships in the Armada <laughs> and, and we can tell each other what's going on, but we don't, but we can't actually do that that well. Um, and, and in, in almost every respect, I and my family, even my kind of, family that I don't live with have been very lucky. Um, we, my, my family in my home, we are healthy. None of us have gotten sick. Um, we all, we kept our jobs. Uh, my kids are handling the way school is working pretty well. I know that a lot of families are not, this has been very difficult. So I'm, I, I'm really conscious of that. Um, and I've been covering the story. So I'm somebody who some of our, our my colleagues and, and friends and loved ones will turn to and say, well, wait, I don't understand. Like when I, if I get the one shot, but not of the other one, how long before I can see my grandchildren, you know, is the one or when we can go see them. It just, it's a constant um, fog of uncertainty and fear um, that sometimes seems kind of remote and far away and sometimes 
I'm, I feel like I'm sitting in the middle of it, both professionally and personally, like all of us. I, I, I think all of us live in this state of persistent fear and confusion. When I became a parent, I remember thinking um, that the main lessons that I had learned were, first of all, wipe up all the wet spots without asking what they are. <laughs> and, and second, uh, that it, be, it was an exercise in living with fear all the time. You're just scared all the time yeah. um, that something bad is going to happen to you mm -hmm. or to your kids. And, and it never goes away. It hasn't gone away from me. But, I, but you learn somehow to live in that space. And my, again, my family's been very lucky. My kids don't have persistent health issues. You know, there, there's so many ways that things can be so much worse. Yet we, we live in fear. And now I think all of us we in, live in this different kind of fear where you have to worry if your trip to the market is going to be fatal for you or someone else. And that's just a weight, a, a social, an anthropological weight that... I don't know. I mean, none of us are dealing with it well, are we? Yeah. I, I hate to tell you on the parenting side, my daughter is 35 and I still am terrified <laughs> when she goes on a trip or yeah. whatever. You guys aren't giving me hope. I have, <laughs> I have, I have two-year-olds. You're not giving me any hope here. <laughs> I made it sound like it's all bad. And obviously it's not, you know, the, the of course. You, you know, it, it's not that, but it is, but you do somehow we learn to live with that as parents. We learn to we learn to be in that emotional space, but now it's like, yeah, that emotional space has a whole new um, dimension that the, um, of the, of the axis of risk and of worry and worry for people we love and worry for the country and worry for the world and worry all these things that we um, now have to try to metabolize somehow. And it, it, it's interesting to me, just wondering how much of that will go away when this is all over? Uh, you know, I, I I wrote a piece for the the last issue of the magazine about my parents who were, you know, grew up in the Depression and my dad who was in World War II, and both of them carried those things with them the rest of their lives. And, and my mother became a, a miser uh, who wouldn't spend any money on herself, and my dad became a recluse who didn't like to leave the house. And I, I, I found myself wondering how much is this going to to change who we are permanently. I can't imagine what it is like. I've tried to talk to him about it, but I have a teenage son and this is, and I remember, you know, that at that age being a pretty formative year for me, uh, for good or ill, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, in terms of development as a human, as a person, what kind of person you were going to be and how you were going to, how I was going to experience the world and be in the world. And he's not in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's, he's in, he's on discord, uh, with friends. There's, there's social stuff going on with him, but I just, the, how hard that must be. And as you say, what the, what the impact is when we come out of this together, um, what that will be, what that will be like for all of us, for all of my saying to folks, I really just would like to go sit at a bar with a friend. <laughs> and have a drink. And, you know, I'm like in the, in the, for, because of that first book, because of my book, I'm in, roughly, at least on the outskirts of the class of professional drinking people, you know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm in the, I'm in the world of people who like professionalized mm -hmm. the idea of being in a bar and, and, and having a drink in one respect or another. I'm, I'm good at that. And I haven't done that in a year, obviously. Um, and I just, as much as I say, like, man, I really not, and not to drink a lot, like that's not, that book isn't about that. And I'm right. not about that. And, and, you know, I, that's, that can be a real dangerous thing for people. And I, I know that, but, but the, the experience of, of a bar as a third place, sitting in a coffee shop and typing that kind of stuff, um, 
But to go back to it, what will that feel like? Do we remember how to do it? Do any of us remember what that is? I think we do, but it will be different. It will change for all of us. Yeah, and will we really be able to shed that little bit of angst? Right. You know, that, that... And I find it interesting because parts of the country are doing that. Yeah, and, that's a good point. And and I I went to school in in, in the south, so I, I a lot of my friends on social media, you know, they live a a distinct, very distinct, different life than we live in California. So that that's also I think an experiment of how our kind of realities will meet eventually. See, that's a really good point too, because it does do something for however however we feel about the the sociopolitical class race divisions that the that our country's dealing with and all these different again all these different dimensions um the fact that some parts of the country broadly i'm i'm tarring with mm -hmm. like a stereotype mm -hmm. brush but that some parts of the country broadly with certain political alignments are experiencing the pandemic differently than other parts of the country the fact that um the that uh that Black people and Latin people are experiencing the pandemic differently than white people. The fact that poor people experience the pandemic differently than, than upper class people. Like there are so many of these different pandemics and the information about them is, is both generated and consumed differently um, that it makes it all the harder to say, what will, what will we be like when we come out of this? Well, the, the people like me who've been lucky enough to be in the, in the, um, on the, the lucky part of all of those socioeconomic vectors um, come out of it kind of blinking in the sun thinking, gosh, I hope I remember how to order a martini, <laughs> you know, that, I mean, okay, that's not being a good human, <laughs> right? Whereas some families are coming yeah. out of it, having lost their grandparents and, and right. their jobs. And, and that's just, that's a whole different, the generation starships went in different directions. Some of us got to more, to happier solar systems and some of us didn't. And then what's it like when you come back to earth for the reunion and be like, ah, eh, the trip wasn't that bad though, really? Like, no, it was terrible. It was terrible for all of us. Yeah. I'm a bummer now. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's shift gears. Um, let's, let's delve into your new book. Um, where did the idea for a book about the science of color come from? Well, just as with the first book, with the second one, I have the, these like proximate and ultimate versions of that story or the longer versions of the story and the shorter one. But I've had this in my head in one form or another for uh, in one form or another, at least since, since I was in, in middle school in some respects, when I mm. did a science project on how the eye sees color and did this experiment in my class to see if the other kids like could I would identify the same color with the same language if I showed them a picture, you know, what color do you see? Um, and I don't even remember why I cared about that. Uh, except that turns out to be one of the central questions about color um, <laughs> that I just had sort of stumbled into as a 11 year old or whatever I was, but more, uh, maybe a better and more truthful example of way to tell that story, I suppose, is that when I was um, a science reporter at Newsweek in the nineties, I got interested in, I found out about this, this pigment, this one um, molecule, this one chemical called titanium dioxide. And it basically it's this, it's stuff that makes the color white. Um, it, you know what titanium is? It's the, you know, the super light metal, the thing that you make artificial hips and Soviet era submarines out of. Um, titanium, you take one atom of that, two atoms of oxygen, you stick those together and you get this stuff with a super high uh, refractive index, very opaque, very bright. 
And it, when you make it into a powder, if you do the right chemistry on it, um, it becomes a thing that you can make the color white with and also becomes a ubiquitous uh, chemical in all of the things around me and you right now. And all the things that human beings make that have color in them often have this stuff in it because it makes things opaque and bright. So it's in a lot of different kinds of paints. It's in paper, it's in um, a lot of plastics, it's in uh, pills and some foods, and it's just ubiquitous in the human built environment. And so I got obsessed with this idea that there was this one thing that was just everywhere and essentially invisible, except that it was also a color. And I couldn't shake that. Um, and I started learning about the history of this stuff and how it fit into the history of human-made colors generally, and pigments and dyes. Um, and, you know, and finally said, all right, well, I got to get this out of my head. This is, a, you know, there's enough here for a book. And I, I kind of told that same story to my agent and to, uh, uh, to an editor, the publisher, done proof. And they both basically said like, yeah, that's sure. But I mean, that can't be it. <laughs> like if you're going to, if you're going to do that, you got to do the thing, you know, you got to do the whole thing of try to figure out what, what color is and why it means so much to us and how we see it and how it's made, where it comes from. And what I, what I came to eventually was this, um, this notion that the, yeah, I'm not the first person to think of this, but it, it really uh, compelled me that when we, when we talk about color, we're talking about three different related overlapping, but three very different things. One of them is the, the physics and chemistry of the universe around us, the, the, the color that would exist, whether we were here to look at it or not, um, the way light works in the, in the universe, photons streaming from stars um, and what they do and how they behave and how they, and then you get to how they interact with other stuff, other matter energy in the universe. And there's a, there's a way that human beings can make things that change how that works, that we can, we can make, we can change surfaces and change objects to make colors and make new colors people have never seen before. And then there's what our eyes and brains do to process all that, to take all that in and make, make something into color that our minds can wrap around and talk about, which is a kind of 3.5 version of this multi-dimensional color space that I'm laying out here, that when we talk about colors, that is also making color because the way that we talk about them um, is so intimate and it changes from language to language and person to person. And that's that, uh, that dorm room thing about like, what if your red is different than my red? Um, because it is, but then we talk about it in ways to ensure that at least we both know we're talking about red, kind of. Um, so all of those, so the, the, all the dynamics um, among all those three or four things, the way the arrows kind of point back and forth to each other became the, the, the subject that I wanted to talk about. And then it was a matter of figuring out, well, okay, well, how do I tell those stories? And, I, and then the book becomes very idiosyncratic because there are a bunch of different stories that I tell in that in that world to try to get at those that are really just the things that I looked at and thought, oh, that's cool. I wanna talk about that. That seems like a good illustration of something in that, of some of those dynamics in that world. So the, so the book ranges from the first, the oldest paint making workshop found in a Neolithic cave in South Africa to the decision to paint the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition in the 1890s, all white instead of colorful because that was an argument in, in color theory and art theory at the time, all the way through how Pixar makes color in the movies that they make. Um, so, it, it, and, and um, it, it, <laughs> the, the metaphor of a tapestry comes up a lot, partially because my partner is a 
a weaver in her spare time. So there are a lot of looms in my house. So it was sort of what I would look over and see while I was typing. Um, but also that, you, that what a tapestry does is combine in various ways, the uh, single colors to make them mix uh, in the eye and in the brain. And so this is a tapestry of how color works and how human beings make color um, in our world. Adam, you told us how long this, this the idea for this book was in your mind. How long did it take you to write it? And where what are some of the places that it took you to? So it took, what happened to time? Time, something has gone strange with time. Uh, I guess it took from the, from the time, you know, from the time I said, okay, it's going to be a book to now, I think it's four years. Um, I was late. I ran late on it. Um, and let's see, travel. Well, I went to, I went to the V place in Cornwall in England where titanium was discovered, where somebody first identified that there was some new element in the dirt in this, in the, the, the bed of a creek. Um, I went there. I spent some time wandering around museums um, in Paris, trying to see the colors instead of just seeing the art. Um, I went to a uh, professional coatings conference in Indianapolis <laughs> to try to talk to the people who use color to um, put on things like cars. Um, there was some some time spent in university labs, various university labs, and talking to folks about their the research into looking into the brains of monkeys and trying to understand what happens in those brains when they see color or the brains of mice. And also trying to, that was in Seattle, on the other side of the country in, uh, um, in Boston was talking to folks about trying to 3D print um, paint forgeries of paintings that would be indistinguishable from the actual painting because of the way that they responded to the color around them. So there was a lot of um, bouncing around to people using color and talking about color in different ways. Sitting in the sitting in the studio at Pixar, not very far away from where I'm talking right now because Pixar is in, in Emeryville, um, and having them, having one of the color engineers show me a model of a television that they were the kind of TV that they're assuming will exist in people's homes at some point with what's called a high, uh, ultra wide dynamic range, which is has to do with color, but is really how black the black gets and how white the white gets. So it's the light that the thing can emit. And he, he at one point just cranked it all the way up um, to show me what it would do. And it was like looking at the sun left and after image. It was so mm -hmm. bright um, mm -hmm. and just thinking, and that has an effect on what colors we see in the colors. But part of the way that you can organize colors um, is how much light they're actually you know, giving off if it's, a, if it's an illuminated thing. If you're looking at colors that are emitting light instead of reflecting light, which is a, one of the distinctions that you have to make with color. Um, so it was this moment of seeing like, oh, right. So technology, technology and color are always in this dance where people discover new kinds of technologies. They're able to show and display more kinds of colors that induces people to then invent more kinds of colors to show. And so there's a, a wider range, a wider gamut, essentially. And then that spurs more technological development. It goes back and forth and has, you know, since human beings first started smearing ochre onto the walls of their, of their temples. So... What are some of the more most interesting things you learned during this uh, that you didn't know going in? Oh I, I just may be asking, like, you know, who are your favorite, who's your favorite <laughs> child or something. But I, but, but. no, it's a it's an interesting question because I, um, some people write a lot of books. I've only managed to write two, and the only thing that really made it possible for me to write either of them in the end, because it's hard. It was hard for me. Um, is that I was obsessed with the material. 
that it was always fun to sit there and try to read another thing or call another person, read another journal article or look at another image and try to understand more of what I was doing. So what that, what that ends up meaning is like, I felt like I learned something new almost every day of working on it. Um, but what were some of the most interesting things? Well, um, I, I did a lot of reporting and reading about um, cave art. Um, and that's something, you know, the, the art that human beings, that early humans would put on, on, on caves and, and went to, um, <laughs> went to one of the, um, the museums that's on top of a cave you can't go into it in the south of France to look at what they had done there. But the, what we get familiar with in the, um, the colors that get used in cave art are, the, um, are black and white. Um, and that's usually uh, a carbon. So a soot is usually what the black is. Sometimes magnesium, but it's usually kind of a soot. The white is um, usually a calcium carbonate of some kind. Uh, so it'll be stone that's ground up like either marble that they'll have or gypsum or something like that. Um, and, uh, and then the kind of a yellowish and a reddish and a purplish, and those are ochres. Those are iron oxides in different combinations, sometimes with other, um, with other elements. And and so those those become the like the 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 buffalo and the and the deer and the humans hunting images that people think of when they think of cave art. Um, but uh, and so I was struck for a long time reading this, like, well, so you if you're one of these people, you're you, you can look out at the south of France and you see the beautiful blue of the sky and the green of the hills and the blue of the river that's passing by, but you can't capture any of that. Says says I to myself as I'm thinking about it, standing there, um, you know, eating a cheese salad while thinking about cave art. Um, but there's this, there's this principle in, um, in archaeology and anthropology called taphonomy. Um, this is the point that I'm trying to get to, uh, that's, that is that sometimes you can't tell, um, what something was used for or what was actually going on when they were using it. And that you have to be careful if you're studying this stuff to not think about it in the way that, uh, an early 21st century human would think about it, but to try to think about it the way those humans would think about 10,000 years, 100,000 years ago, whatever. And so the thing about colors is that um, the pigments that make the, the make the images that I was just talking about, the, those ochres and the magnesium or carbon, whatever, are very um, sticky, literally and historically. They they persist. So the ones that are there, as long as the moisture doesn't get in and the you know, caves aren't destroyed when you go look at them, but they're, they're still around. They're, the originals are still there and the colors, almost certainly the colors would have been when humans looked at them. But it's possible, not likely for some reason, but it's possible that there were other pigments that those people might have used based on plants, let's say, that could have given them the greens and the blues, that part of the spectrum, that part of the color gamut made from plants or berries or whatever that didn't persist, that didn't last. So we today don't actually know how they saw the world and how they then tried to depict it in the colors that they had, because we're not totally sure what colors they had at their disposal, because the blues and greens might have peeled off the walls and turned, in, turned to dust and gone a long time ago, while the yellows and the reds and the blacks and whites stayed. I find that really romantic for some reason. I, the, the idea that we can see some of what they saw, but maybe not all of what they saw. That's sort of a general principle with history, right? I mean, you, you yeah. look back at what people wore in the, the 1920s even, and you know what we have left is only the stuff that has aged and, and lost its colors and all that. It's harder to, to know exactly what people look like. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. 
And even in the even in more recent history, the um, I spent a chapter talking about the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition, 1893, primarily because that was I got interested in the color white. That was the, called the White City. There have been other books about that. Of course, a lot of people have written about this fair. Um, primarily, the um, the urban planner who designed it made an almost capricious decision um, to take the neoclassical designs that they were working on, um, which are the things that look like Greek and Roman temples, the ways that the you know the U.S. Capitol is built, and the way that, in fact, that President Trump signed an executive order to say that all federal buildings should be designed in that style, that President Biden has now just overturned this big thing in the architecture world. Um, and neoclassicism uh, is often, I think rightly, uh, seen as a um, the the architecture of, in some cases, outright fascism, but also in the uh, an authoritarian perspective on government, in part because the color, the whiteness of it, is actually meant in a in a racialized way as well, um, because even when the even when the the Beaux Arts school trained neoclassical architects at the World's Fair were building the the main, the Court of Honor, the main buildings at the World's Fair to be neoclassical and also white. They knew or they had to know that even in classic Roman Greece, those buildings were not white, <laughs> that they were painted, they were colored with some of the same color, with basically the same color gamut that I just ran through for Neolithic humans with that, those mm -hmm. ochre yellows and reds that they had some blues too, greens, but um, those colors would have been very familiar to the people who were painting on the walls of Blombo's cave in South Africa. And, and that gets that got ignored kind of intentionally because the World's Fair was supposed to be an expression of manifest destiny and the way that the that essentially the dominant the dominant white overculture of the United States had finally made it to the Pacific, <laughs> basically. Um, but in the midst of all that, there were these two very colorful, both metaphorically and literally very colorful exponents. There was the um, the Midway Plaisance which Frederick Law Olmsted, who was one of the designers, had said, hey, maybe we should also have a part of this where that people will go to have fun. Um, and he thought that from then on, uh, people would describe th something like that at a fair, at a county fair or world's fair, he would call those things, they, people would call those things plaisances. So of course, everyone calls them the midway now. <laughs> uh, but then also right off the court of honor, uh, was a was the transportation building. The building would house the history of transportation from the beginning of humanity to to the 1890s. And it was a riot of color because it was built in a totally different polychromatic style that the Chicago architects were also trying to build at that time that came from an entirely different architectural tradition. And it is almost invariably everybody, everybody who studies the Chicago World's Fair, it's invariably everybody's favorite building. And none of this is left. There's one building from the fair left that they still use in Chicago as a museum, but all the rest of it plowed underground, basically burned down. So every so often they still find fragments of it or something, but people try to reconstruct from memory and history and pictures what the transportation building looked like, this beautiful polychromatic riot. Um, I wish I could have seen that. That would have been lovely. Adam, early in the book, you write about color perception and tiny microbes and the possible origin of color perception. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, one of the fun, one of the most fun questions that that I think any scientist or you know schmuck like me could ask uh, is why do we see color? Why does anything see color? What is the point of that perceptually? Not, not just culturally, but uh, like why would it why would an organ a living organism see it? Especially because uh, living organisms, we all see color kind of in different ways. So humans see this narrow band of the electromagnetic spectrum that we describe as the visible spectrum. And there are a lot of ways to talk about color, but it's basically 
one way to say this would be between 400 and 750 nanometers, because one way to think about color is as an oscillation in the in electrical and magnetic fields. Those are sort of at 90 degrees to each other, and those oscillations you can calculate the the wavelength of the oscillation, and that gives you a way to talk about different colors because the way the human eye and brain work is that some of those wavelengths look bluish and some of those wavelengths look reddish. Some of that's a consequence of how our eyes are built. But some of that is physics too. But not every living thing sees just that narrow wavelength. Some living things see um, uh, lower wavelengths, see shorter wavelengths um, that are bluer. Some living things see longer wavelengths that are redder. Um, I always, even though I wrote a book about this and I always have to check to make sure that I said that wrong, say that right. Yeah, so the longer ones are the redder and the shorter ones are the bluer. I always, <laughs> my brain just won't hold on to that. It's right in the book. Um, and, but so, so, uh, so birds and insects experience a, a colorful world totally differently than the one that we do. They see flowers in different colors. They see leaves in different colors. Um, and so then the question is, well, where did that come from? Because obviously that's a function of evolution. So there's some evolutionary benefit. There's some adaptive benefit to being able to see colors. Some things benefit differently than others. As, as mammals, we were all descended from the little nocturnal scurrying things that managed to get away from the dinosaurs at some point. Um, and when you're nocturnal uh, and you, you don't need to see much color because there's not as much color at night, somewhere along the way, the, the, the monkeys that we descended from reacquired the ability to see three different colors and th have three photoreceptors instead of just two. So our color vision is better than some other monkeys even. and some and most other mammals. They're pretty bad at seeing color. Um, birds being descended from dinosaurs are really good at it. But early on, so there has to be somewhere, there has to be some early example of life that first started to be able to see color. Um, and and one, one case where that might have happened are some very are a totally different branch of life on the tree that's billions of years old that would have been the first living things on Earth that turn out to have been able to distinguish between basically blue light and red light. Um, because one of those would have told them how to hide and one of them would have been a place where they could hunt, where they could go look for food, essentially. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, those critters had to develop the pigments that would respond differently, that would send a signal, a, a, a bodily signal, a signal inside their own little single cells that would say either, okay, now we're getting this one wavelength, go toward it. Now we're getting this other wavelength, go away from it. And so the question then is, how do they evolve that? <clears throat> and the, and the, the hypothesis is that it began as a form of photosynthesis, um, that you develop uh, these very complicated molecules, versions of which still exist today in plants, that will be able to use what, in this case, um, turn the photons coming into the body of these microorganisms, of these microbes, um, because Another way to talk about light is as a particle called a photon, which sort of is the single point where that oscillation is taking place, the, that electromagnetic oscillation. It's the smallest amount of energy that you can pack into that single point. That's the thing that Einstein came up with where, when they described that single, that smallest amount of energy as a quanta, as a quantum of energy. That's the where quantum physics comes from. And then somebody else named it a photon, the one that's of light, that small packet of light energy or electromagnetic energy is a photon. So you can use the input of those to get energy inside and then make what's called a proton pump 
that will let energy into a cell that will let that cell make some energy make it let it make food basically and then if you learn how to make those kind of molecules then you have built the same kind of molecule that exists even today in the human eye in animals eyes that will when photons of certain energy levels or certain wavelengths of light those are the same thing impinges on that molecule it changes the shape of the molecule enough that the molecule can send a signal to the rest of whatever the organism is that says, hey, yeah, I caught one. I caught a photon here of the, of the energy <laughs> level that we're looking for. And that's the beginning of the, of the, the biochemical cascade, uh, neuroelectrical cascade that turns into color perception in your eye and mine. The weird thing about that, though, is that the molecules that, that these early, early, early microorganisms life on Earth had have the same shape and structure as the ones that we do but they are made of totally different amino acids. So a protein uh, is made of a sequence of amino acids. Amino acids are the subunits of a protein and the, and the way that they fit together creates the shape of the protein. So the shape of the proteins are super similar, but the individual units aren't. It'd be like building the same spaceship out of different Legos. And then the question is, well, okay, did our color vision evolve from that? Or did color vision evolve more than once? Because that can happen too, because maybe being able to see color or be able to use light, not just as a um, source of power, not just as food, but as a source of information, as knowledge, is, is adaptive on earth. If you're trying to live here, it gives you more information about the world around you than just seeing it monochromatically, seeing it in black and white in grayscale. Um, it lets you know more. And nobody is really sure what, more it lets you know that there are plenty of theories um, leading up to the way humans see it. But you can imagine hypotheses like, well, it's really good to be able to see a red fruit against a backdrop of green leaves, let's say. But that probably isn't true. People, the animals eat all kinds of different things. It's really good to be able to see the flower glowing so you know where to land on it and get pollen, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But these are all stories about why evolution works are often just, just so stories. They're, they're hard to confirm. So nobody is really sure, but, but there's some kind of through line from the first life on earth, being able to distinguish between that kind of light and that kind of light, between that color and that color, and the way that we do that now. So, you know, that, that story is a really good example of something that interests me. And that is, uh, you know, science writing is, it's really all about making mind blowingly complex topics understandable to people who don't have um, advanced degrees. Um, how do you go about that? You know, um, I've been very lucky to have a lot of different teachers and a lot of different kinds of teachers who've had different ideas about that. And some of them were at Pomona um, and some of them were mentors, you know, um, as I became a professional. I think uh, I, I, I really like uh, writing as, a, as an activity and an exercise. It's hard, I mean, it's a pain. I bang my head against the desk like any other writer does, but um, finding ways to express complicated concepts is the challenge <laughs> that, that's like fun to try to deal with. Um, I try to write, uh, 
accessibly and funnily. Um, it, it, if I'm doing it right, it looks really light. Um, I had a, uh, my first boss and mentor at Newsweek when I first started the first, first real job, first job I had with benefits, let's say, um, who just died uh, earlier this year, a woman named Sharon Begley, a brilliant science writer. And I, I still remember this one move that she did in a story about comets, trying to understand when a comet was made of, where she said comets were either dusty ice balls or icy dust balls. <laughs> and, the, yeah. and the thing about that line is that it packs a ton of uncertainty and information in just a few words. And so I try to, I try to do that. I try to pack that sensibility I'm, I, she used to do that with metaphors. She's that the thing I said about Legos, build a different, the same spaceship with different kinds of Legos um, is a, to me in my head, that's like, how would Sharon explain this? That's how Sharon would explain it was to try to use that as a thing that people do understand to apply it to a thing that they don't or have not heard about yet. The risk with science writing and it's a risk with doing, doing science too, is this, I've come to think of this as a metaphor trap. It's like, sometimes the metaphors, um, you think the metaphor is true and the metaphor is not. You know the the true stuff is actually the numbers is actually the data but we're all we're all constantly trying to turn that into turn that information into knowledge turn that data into information and turn that into knowledge um and i think i go back and forth on whether it's harder or 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 just the same with science you know as a science writer like nobody expects a sports writer to explain what a touchdown is every time they write about football there is a certain expectation the science writer will explain what dna is every time we talk about genes um, and in a way, like the rules of football aren't maybe much more, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm telling on myself here, I find rules <laughs> of football to be almost opaque, <laughs> whereas I sort of understand how DNA ends up coding for proteins. Um, but, uh, but they're, they, they do require not just the same level of explanation all the time, but an explanation that is tailored to the readers and what you hope a reader will do. My hope with a, with a book, I had this hope for the booze book and I have this hope for the color book, is that it is the kind of book that when you're reading it in bed, that every page will have something where you will elbow your partner and say like, did you know, <laughs> did you realize that? That's, I hope that what, once per page, there will be a thing where you will bother your partner when you're reading in bed about it. It's like, I had no idea that that's true. That's what I hope for. That it'll be something that will kind of expand the way that you think about the way the world works. That it, that, and and I, I, I do see it that way all the time. That, it, that the job is to, to lift a veil, to move a curtain, to, 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 move, to wave your hand so that the smoke dissipates and people can see, um, like, oh, that's how that works. That's what that is. Um, and, and, uh, here's why I had no idea that, you know, when I, when I, that my, my ideal color blue is different than somebody else's color blue, even though we're both talking about blue, you know, we're both thinking of different colors, but we both say blue at the same time that blows my mind. I find that fascinating. And so then when I see something like that, I think, well, wait, how does that work? And so a lot of those chapters are just really, you can really see me. <laughs> saying, wait, saying like, I go, I'll write about 400 words. And then the bottom of is like, so how does that work? Glad you asked. Here's, let's, here we go. So you elbow yourself. So just, you're... Yeah, it's terrible. So, so why are you writing? Were you elbowing your partner? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man. She, and I did say, did you know that? She's so tolerant of that now <laughs> of me, like after a day of writing, coming home, I, like, I don't know which is worse for people who live with writers 
the, the day where we come home after a good day of writing and we're elated and we think we're brilliant and we figured out something <laughs> cool or the day that where we just like sat in front of a screen and barely managed to squeeze 150 words out and come home and like, well, it's all over time to go get a new job. Better sell the house. Like, that's it. We're failure. Like which day is worse? I don't know. They both seem mm -hmm. terrible. Um, one is certainly more fun for the writer, I think. Uh, but I, um, and, but I do think that like the good day is when, is, is when you can go from a concept that's thorny and you've been trying to wrap your head around and you have the good interview and you have the right, um, and you finally find the words, you know, to explain it in a, in a way that's going to work for people. Um, and that's, it's a good, that's a good fight to have. Do you ever find yourself out of your own scientific depth and how do you manage that? All the time. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm always out. Of, I have no scientific depth um, in some respects. Uh, uh, I, my, sci my science training, it, it was, my formal science training was at, was at Pomona and that was it. Um, you know, I was a science, technology and society major. I have slightly more than half of a biology degree. The rest of it's history. Um, now that's, that turned out to be really meaningful because I find myself still writing STS stuff, basically. Like that's what I'm still doing that. I, it took me a long time to realize that somebody had to point it out to me, you know, that I was writing stories about like, it's really complicated figuring out how to effectively measure things. <laughs> you are like, Oh, you're still doing STS. Oh, I'm still doing STS, man. Shout out to STS. Yeah. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, but I, I think I, I hope that's a strength being out of my scientific depth at the beginning of a story, the beginning of a reporting process is different than being out of my scientific depth at the end of that process when I'm actually writing it. I just, I need to know enough. I need to understand it well enough to explain it. And that, that means a lot, that's a lot of understanding. It's hard, but, um, I find, I, I think one of the best, one of the most fortunate things that I get being a journalist is that I'm almost always talking to people who are smarter than me and know more than me. Two different things, right? But almost all the time, it's both. Um, which means that I'm always cognizant of the fact that th something that I think I know, I'm probably wrong about. Um, and that's a really hard... Uh, I'm not, and I'm not always great at this. That's not the claim I'm making here. But it is very hard for human beings, I think, to live in a, in, in a state of like, I'm probably wrong about this. Here's the thing I think, it's probably wrong. So now I need to go out and figure out whether it is wrong and what the right thing is or what the more right thing is, or it's going to turn out to like, no, I'm not wrong. I had that right. And it'll change all the time. And that's really hard too. Things that I thought were right, you know, a year ago turn out not to be right. And you have to write it again and be like, hey, you know that thing I said? Yeah, turns out. And like, that has to be okay. Um, and I think that while I am often out of my scientific depth in terms of understanding a specific thing about the science that I'm writing about, and I need to learn that, and I'm, I'm grateful because a, a lot of times scientists will take time and say, no, here's, here's what we mean. Here's how it works. Here's what that is. And here's how it fits into the context of other science. Um, but I think that, uh, I think the, a, a background in having a, at least an, a, some understanding or some sense of how science works, of what the process of science does, of how science understands things and tries to understand things better. That's pretty critical. And I, I think I'm okay at that, at being able to say, okay, here's the question you said you were asking. Here's the things that you did to try to answer that question. Here's what other answers might be out there. Here's what you didn't answer. Is that okay that you didn't answer those? What more do you need to know? Um, and those are all tools that scientists use and also journalists in every beat. 
um, at least a good, you know, what we're supposed to be doing, a good journalist in every beat is supposed to be saying, okay, you, this person in front of me is making a claim. How does that person know? And what, what is not, what is probably not right about that claim? What is probably right about that claim? That's central to our, to our function. I also, I've seen a real change. I, I've been a, I've been a working science journalist for almost 30 years now. Cause I, I started 25. And when I first started, I would have been much more, you know, after a few years, I would have been much more strident about the idea that I would rather have journalists learning how to cover science than scientists becoming journalists. Um, because I really felt like at the time that there were, that there were loyalty issues in a sense that there were that a scientist who was trying to write about science would, would basically not aggressively enough chase the sometimes the, the ways that science got things wrong not just about the the facts or the, the knowledge that science was trying to generate but but about the the way science works in practice and who gets left out of some studies and what and how science is as a field and whether it's welcoming to a lot of different kinds of people that sort of stuff i think that's probably not i think i was either wrong about that then or things have changed because i think now the um the scientists coming into journalism and there are more and more of them are bringing with them such deep knowledge about a specific beat because that's mm -hmm. what it becomes mm -hmm. that it that they're able to better identify stories and problems and things mm -hmm. to go cover um, in ways that that I feel very insecure about being able to identify that I'm often not able in, anymore if I was ever that great at it <clears throat> excuse me to be able to say um, oh yeah that's weird that's new that's a story that's something not right that we should look into or that's something that's important that comes out so I, I've I've changed my opinion about that. Um, not, and not to my benefit because now it's like, oh yeah, well now it's, there, there are these great, tremendous journalists. Some of the best journalists covering COVID right now are, are that in part because they've got PhDs in relevant fields, um, which leaves me, you know, sort of flailing on like, well, all right, I guess I got to find a different way into this, which I've tried to do. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're getting short on time, probably a couple more questions. Um, as a, a science writer in the country today with, uh, you know, uh, the degree of, of science denial and the politicization of science and just, I don't know, the general lack of scientific literacy in America today, does that, it, it, I mean, it must be frustrating. I mean, do you run up against that as a writer? I, I do. I, I would have said, 10 years ago, I would have said, well, this is that it's on me to make sure that people understand, you know, what my writing. And so I need to tailor that to with a recognition that people won't know what I'm necessarily talking about from the from the jump. And I have to like compel them to come into a story and give them reasons to keep reading and then explain to them stuff that's right and true. I still think all of that. Um, I think that some some of this is the media's fault, some of it's not, that people have so little understanding now, not only of about science in the way that you might learn it in a um, in a classroom, but also about just how science, how, who scientists are, how scientists think, how science works as a, as an endeavor, imperfectly, you know, like any other human endeavor, but how it works, what it what the thinking is, and and how it works, and how you know something is maybe more true than than something else, and and we all just societally have been terrible at explaining that to people. We don't really teach it. We don't really make it a priority. 
Um, and, and I think we're reaping some of that now where, um, where we don't tell people how to understand the difference between different authority figures saying something. When do you look, when, do, you know, when somebody who you believe is an authority says some things, when, when a famous, when a person who's famous for being uh, charismatic in movies tells you things about how health works, how can you know that what that person is saying is true or not? Um, because they're very charismatic. <laughs> they're very good at telling things. That's their whole job. Um, and that seems obvious to me, but it's clearly not obvious. It's clearly not obvious. So there has to be a better way to explain that. And, it, and, and as you say, you use the word politicized. And I think that's, that's a really interesting one, because of course, to an old STS major like me, it was always political. Um, but that's easy. That's facile, right? I mean, it's easy to say that. Um, but, uh, but when, but when, <laughs> when there are literally members of Congress having these toxic, passive-aggressive fights across the halls from each other about the definition of of gender and and what the rights of people who are transgender are like by putting signs up about what the science actually says it clearly something corrosive has happened here about using science as that as misusing science because that's you know they're wrong about what that science of gender says broadly um the like clearly we've done something wrong about how to explain that to each other uh and i think some of this is because people do see because some people on the right the political right see this as a possible lever. They see the, they see their the their constituents' ignorance of how science works. And I don't use that term pejoratively. There, it's hard to know these things if you aren't taught it. You don't know them. Like I said, I start out almost every story not being sure where I'm headed with it. Um, they've been able to use that to say, "See those people over there hate you because they these they, those smarty pants. They sound they're trying to sound smarter than you. They think they're smarter than you. Don't let them." And, and that's just, that, that's, a, that's a chasm that has to get crossed somehow. Um, uh, and it's supposed to be my job in part is to figure out how to cross that chasm. Um, so I try, you know, you try to make, to try to make a connection. I can make this more concrete maybe. The, the, the same principles of how science works and what science can and can't understand and how it understands more and how it gathers information and how it draws conclusions from that information the same principles apply to the Perseverance rover that just landed on Mars, which I just wrote a story about, and the way um, scientists understand how to make and test vaccines. Those are the same. There's, it's the same scientist. Those scientists know how to talk to each other. They study different things, but they're doing the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And almost nobody, there are no anti-Marsers. There are some. <laughs> just, I was going to say, like, ah, <laughs> not as many. But let's say they're not. There's not a political movement that says you shouldn't believe in the X-ray spectroscopy that the Pixel instrument uses on the arm of the Perseverance (laughs) rover because it causes autism. Like nobody (laughs) says that. And and to try to be able to say, you know how this, you know that that works. And so if you believe that here's how you can believe this other stuff. Um, 
And, you know, we were talking about how hard it is to be a parent. I'm not dismissing people's fears about how to take care of their kids. That's obviously important. But you, you can actually use the one principles to explain the other. You can actually use the, 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 the science does have some, does have explanatory power and, and the ability to make people know more stuff about their, the world around them. Um, those are, those, those are overlapping. Uh, and I, uh, I hope that that's, at least that shows the credibility of the people who, who explain the one can maybe explain the other. Um, Cause it is disheartening. It is hard. It is hard for, it's hard for me. It has been hard to cover COVID for a year and to have people still be not, not even out of political weaponization, but have people still be genuinely confused about stuff that I feel like, no, we've written about this. I've written this in every story we've done. I've said this. How's that still Oh, right. Cause you didn't read it. Why would you <laughs> like, who am I? You know, that's egotistical. But like, but every, you know, there's so many of, there's so many brilliant journalists, more brilliant, way better journalists than I am. Who've been covering this. Who like, I thought everybody was reading, but everybody was tweeting about that story. Oh, right. No, no, nobody's on Twitter. What am I, how do you use that as a barometer? Like I can't figure out <clears throat> how it's possible that people could still be confused about stuff. And then I look at the messaging that comes out of still that came out of the federal government for a year. And that still does. And like, Oh, right. No, it is pretty confusing. We've got to find a better way to be more honest <clears throat> and to be more open um, about what's known and what's not known and to write about that in an engaging way. And that, I hope that's what I'm doing. It's, it is, I, I will admit that I'm less sure about it now than I was a year ago. Adam, what advice do you have for young people out there who are interested in pursuing a career in science writing? It is, I, I, hope, I hope that they will. It is a hard time in journalism now for social reasons and economic reasons. But I, I, I remain optimistic that, there, that even if the, the kind of places that do journalism will change, there still will, will be places to do journalism. And I think that writing about science, I still think it's the, don't tell any of my colleagues, I think it's the most important beat. I don't, don't, <laughs> don't tell anybody <laughs> I said that. Um, because I think, yeah, thank you. Uh, because I think it, it gets at the root code of, of the universe. It's not just how the physics of the universe works, but it also, it makes understanding the science and being able to understand what's real is the, is the core to how a democracy functions. I already think that journalism is the, is a key piece of, of making a democracy successful in terms of holding the powerful to account for what they're doing. And also in terms of making sure that people understand how the world works and being able to make better decisions in their in their votes and in their voices. And I think that science journalism is an important part of that. So I would hope that people would want to go into that with that and with that in mind, with getting it getting it both as deep truths as it's possible to understand and write about, and then also making sure that people understand them in a way that's that resonates, that's true to them, that that they can internalize and and um, operationalize and turn into something that they can use in their lives. Um, both in a way of being better citizens and understanding each other and and also having you know good things to elbow their partner about to say did you know because that's pretty cool because then you got something cool to talk about i think that's important too <laughs> so on that note we're going to wrap this up uh, we've been talking with adam rogers science writer and author of the forthcoming book uh, full spectrum how the science of color made us modern to be released on may 18th thanks adam my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a, it is an honor to be called back by the school to get to chat. <laughs> and to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast at Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.